This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So start off by telling me, are you really fine? We all have mental health and it's just as important as physical health. No Really, I'm Fine shares real stories and experiences, but we aren't experts and this podcast is not an alternative to getting official medical advice. If your mental or emotional state quickly dips or you're worried about someone you know, help and support is out there. Talk to your GP or call the Samaritans on 0800 58 58 58. For advice on how to help a friend or loved one, visit rethink.org. Hello everyone and welcome to episode five of No Really, I'm Fine. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This is a very special episode and here's our main host Gemma to tell us why. Thanks very much, Kate. Yes, so today we have for you the lovely Matt Hake. Now, for those of you who don't know, Matt Hake is very big in the mental health world and he has joined us exclusively today to have a chat with us about his own mental health experiences. And also he has a chat about his various books, including the number one bestseller, Reasons to Stay Alive, and also Notes on a Nervous Planet. It was um, amazing meeting him. Um, yeah, it was just really good. I'm sort of equally happy and jealous that you got to, to sit down with Matt. I love Matt. Um, I remember just I've been following him, following him on Twitter since forever. The work he's done for kind of getting mental health out there and making people think, you know, it's okay to talk about this stuff and just how kind of real and relatable he makes it is just brilliant. Yeah, and um, I was surprised with myself the fact that I've only read his books recently. I wish I read them, um, you know, ages ago because I felt like they would have helped me sooner because I only came across them really this year. I don't know why. But, yeah, so I just feel like I was very privileged to meet him in person because he just helps so many people. I mean, I follow him on Twitter as well and just, just seeing his profile of so many people getting in touch to say how much they've helped him. And he's quite political and very passionate about the um, planet. And I just feel like... Um, his second book, Notes on a Nervous Planet, the sort of sequel, if you like, to Reasons to Stay Alive. It's not like a self-help book, but it sort of really helps you to understand why you might be feeling anxious in today's modern world with the rise of social media, the rise of technology. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting, and Matt sort of explores that in this episode. But obviously, I don't really want to give too much away, so we want all Matt Haig fans to tune in and just really enjoy it and enjoy his lovely lovely voice and if you want to keep updated you can follow our twitter at i'm fine podcast underscore thanks guys and enjoy so matt welcome we are so excited to have you here on the fifth episode of no really i'm fine thank you so much for joining us i'm a massive fan as i've oh, mentioned before and um, so it is a real honor to have you here thank oh, you well, thanks for inviting me it's not nice to be here so we ask our guests, are you feeling really fine today? 
I'm feeling surprisingly good because normally on a day where I've got lots of like press interviews and things, um, I get a bit stressed. But actually today, whether it's the weather or the fact that I've eaten quite healthily or I had a good night's sleep, I'm feeling quite good today. Good. For those of our listeners who don't know you, you are the number one best-selling author of Reasons to Stay Alive. Love that book. And you have recently released Notes on a Nervous Planet. And you also have six highly acclaimed novels for adults, including How to Stop Time, The Humans and The Bradleys. And you've also written recently the Sunday Times bestseller, The Truth Pixie. And you've won multiple awards and your books are in many, many different languages across the world. Again, an honour to have you here. You've done your research. I yes. have indeed. <laughs> it's very nice. It makes me feel quite old when I hear. <laughs> I think altogether, oh yeah, I've written like, getting on for 15 books if you include everything now which means i probably needed more of a social life yeah. did you think you would ever write that many no well, i didn't think i'd write any to be honest at the start i mean i i you know when i was younger i had no confidence at all and no sort of ambition i found it very hard to sort of see my own future so if someone had told me say at the age of like 17 that i was going to just be a published author of one book that had been like a dream come true so yeah it's all a bit surreal now, reasons to stay alive, that really resonated with me. Um, and I imagine it's resonated with a lot of other people. Do you mind telling us a bit about it for our listeners who might not have come across it? Yeah, reasons to stay alive um, is a book about mental health. It's about my mental health. Um, it's about me when I was in my 20s, um, struggling to find reasons to stay alive. And I was uh, in a state of panic disorder and depression and anxiety and all that stuff. And it was, um, it's not a straightforward memoir. It's its a kind of self-help book, but kind of not. It's a sort of mix of personal experience, lists of advice, but a lot of that advice isn't necessarily uh, for the reader to follow. It's more like, I mean, I suppose I wrote that whole book um, almost as a letter to my 24-year-old self who... I had a full-blown breakdown, messy breakdown in, in Ibiza. And then I was um, back at home living with my parents and my partner and in a, in a terrible state for ages. And I, I thought I was going to be in that state forever. So that's what made me suicidal. I just thought, I can't, I can't do this forever. It's just that every day was so infinitely hard. It was panic disorders. I felt like I totally lost myself. I didn't, I felt weird just looking at myself in the mirror. I thought, who is that person? I felt really, really low for a long time. And I, because it went on quite a while, I thought, yeah, this is going to be it. This is going to be my life. And that's why I was suicidal. I didn't have an understanding that things would change or that my attitude towards um anxiety and stuff would change and also when you're quite young um you don't have qu quite the perspective of time like living and life gives you yet and so it can be very dangerous especially when you first experience mental illness when you're in that state and yeah basically I didn't want to write an academic last word about depression I just wanted to write something that could keep that person in the world and maybe give them a bit of hope so the challenge was to write a book about depression that wasn't depressing mm. that, was a, that was the main thing that was real and authentic but it wasn't going to make people feel even more crap at what point did you think i need to write this book well i mean this was the only book i'd ever been asked to write i had a friend um called kathy who works in publishing 
I'd written a blog, basically. I'd written a blog called Reasons to Stay Alive. It was just a one-off blog, just on my website. It wasn't a series. And it was just a list of 10 things I should tell myself for myself. And this blog had a lot of responses, a lot of warm responses. And it was the first time I'd properly come out about my mental health. And this was like over a decade since when I'd last been feeling suicidal. So it's taken me a long time to get to that point. And then one of the person who read the blog was Kathy, my friend, and she said I should write a book. And I didn't know. I didn't know what my publishers would think. I didn't know what I'd think. There was a bit of a ming and ahhing. People weren't necessarily getting it straight away. And I, I wasn't getting it straight away. I didn't know how to write it. So it was a it was a long process of working out how to write it but when when I actually eventually sat down and wrote this thing called Reasons to Stay Alive it, it was very quick it was over a summer and it was like everything had been building up and building up and building up and I finally had the space to share what I was feeling to be hopeful about my bad times and to sort of yeah it was a, it was a very therapeutic very cathartic kind of experience mm-hmm. And going back to your time in my Ibiza, why do you think it happened then? I mean, that's the ultimate goal question, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, the thing is, when you say Ibiza, people think, oh, well, you're just off your head on drugs and you're going crazy and all of that. But it's a bit more complicated than that with me because I've been ignoring a lot of things that have been going on with me for a long time, I think. So even though it felt like a very sudden breakdown, it felt like this came from out of nowhere, it hadn't been really. I think one of the reasons I was in a beefer in the first place was because I was trying to put off becoming a grown-up, trying to put off um, real work. I'd had a bit of a depressing winter in London the winter before, series of sort of dead-end jobs and things I'd walked out of. And I was in a bit of a mess psychologically. And it was actually the end of the summer, summer 1999, and I was about to go back to England, about to face up to my responsibilities. Where You know, this was our third summer... Um, working in Spain and by that point you know we weren't partying that hard I'd been for a run actually the morning I became ill hadn't Mm. taken any drugs I mean I had taken drugs in my life but um, the day it happened I hadn't taken drugs I hadn't even smoked a cigarette and I was a smoker then hadn't drank any alcohol but then at about 11 in the morning just from nowhere my heart started going my head started feeling very weird and at first I thought it was something physical because so many of my symptoms were physical symptoms. I thought I was having some sort of attack, some sort of stroke, heart attack. I don't know what was going on. And um, yeah, essentially it was a very deep, prolonged panic attack that sort of fluctuated for about a week really, swinging between panic and depression. And because that was so sort of traumatic, um, it triggered a big episode of depression and panic disorder. Mm-hmm. Panic disorder, for those that don't know, is basically quite an intense anxiety disorder where you're either in a state of a very deep panic attack or you're dreading the next one. And I'd be having quite a few panic attacks a day and it became hard to tell where the panic attack started and ended. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a horrible, horrible experience. But I I now realise there were many factors. I... You know, as well as the sort of life stuff, I hadn't been sleeping well. I had been living unhealthily over the last sort of three years, even though on the day I was relatively healthy. You know, I, I, for a 24-year-old, I wasn't 
particularly looking after myself very well, drinking far too much, um, smoking, not taking that many drugs by a beef stunts, but still taking drugs occasionally. And so, yes, I, I, I wasn't in a very good place. And, um, I think the I, fact that there was another change very imminent happening in my life uh, sent me over. I think like change is often a big trigger for many people. For life. Absolutely. And it doesn't always have to be a um, bad change. You know, uh, obviously things like grief and losing a job, that's bad, but um, that can trigger mental health stuff. But also, you know, good stuff. I mean, the amount of people you hear who win the lottery and they <laughs> go off the rails or, you know, it can be something you've always wanted, like, getting married or having a baby or whatever it is and often when you when you have um any kind of change is unsettling and that fact it's unsettling and makes it bad and also with good stuff in your life um like i was in spain where I'd, you know and I, we, we lived in the, actually a quiet part of the island in this villa and it overlooked the sea and we had the most beautiful view and i can remember one day going out of the villa wanting to sort of throw myself off these big um, limestone cliffs and looking at the view and the fact that it was so beautiful and lovely made me feel worse because I thought, well, you know, I'm in sort of like a paradise and I feel like this and so nothing can help me because I can't, I can't move somewhere sunny and be all right because I'm in somewhere sunny and I hadn't really got my life sorted. But for a 24 year old at that point, I felt superficially I'd got, I was having a good life, although I'd question that now. But yeah, so it's often when things externally look okay, but you feel terrible. Mm. And that contrast can be upsetting as well. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to a therapist, Matt, but but I haven't. What I've found difficult with um, things like that is they always seem to ask you whether you've had like a sort of traumatic experience yeah, or yeah. what was your childhood like. And for me, my childhood was quite happy Um did you find that as well because you didn't have a traumatic experience? Say you were wondering where's this come from? Yes. If that makes sense. Absolutely. No. And that's the thing, isn't it, with mental health stuff. And I think Freud is a big part of this. Like you almost play like 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 it's like a mystery thriller, like a who done it. Like you're trying to work out well, instead of working out who the killer is, you're trying to work out what 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 was the point? What who pulled the trigger on my mental health? What happened? Is there some memory of abuse that I blacked out or <laughs> yeah. is there something suppressed? And was you was start, I abused? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you do, you almost want something because then you can actually deal with it. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote um, Notes on a Nervous Planet, the sort of follow-up to Rose and Stay Life, was because I wanted to find a context for my head being a mess because one of the reasons I was suicidal as I say was because I didn't think I'd get out of it and the reason I didn't think I'd get out of it is because I didn't know how I'd got into it like you're saying it's, it can be hard um with that and so so like yeah if you see a therapist they you know look at causes and stuff and it's hard and and you know in modern life certainly nowadays there can be so many things that play about with a mental health can often be like accumulation of things it's not it's not always got that simple single thing, thing yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean obviously if you're suffering through ptsd or something then that's different and also it's a vicious circle so once it starts to go wrong the thing you're traumatized about is itself so 
those panic attacks i mean people say panic attack as if it's like a like a little thing like you you lost your keys or i've had a bit of a panic attack. yeah i hate it when people <laughs> say oh i'm in a panic it's like i've had a panic attack it's not like it's that not. at all <laughs> it's, uh, yeah and that's the true of all mental health language isn't it it's so part of everyday speech i'm depressed at the moment i even say that and it's like i'm not i know what depression is um oh it's like when someone says oh i think i was just having a bit of anxiety yes like like Um, it's like the ocd thing isn't it yeah and all that yeah it's not it's not great but yeah those panic attacks themselves were so you know so horrific but i don't think i actually thought they could be panic attacks because I thought, oh, I've had panic attacks before. I've been nervous about a bit of public speaking or having to do a presentation at uni. That was a panic attack. No, I mean, it might have been a mild panic attack, but what those full-blown panic attacks were like were so where you lose, you know, you can have something horrible happen to you physically and I'm definitely not doing the compare game. But like when I, for instance, I my back sometimes seizes up and it is agony and I have massive back pain and it is horrible. But... The only consolation if you have a physical pain is that you, you, A, you know it's not you, it's your back. So you've got that sort of separation. And B, you think, well, I can, you know, if I do this or I can move into this position. Or, whereas with a, like a panic attack, it's like having a bad back. But instead of sort of going down on the floor doing some physio exercises, you're actually making it worse. So it's like if you had a bad back and then you're told to just pick up a load of cement and then keep on picking a load of ever heavier bags of cement and your back gets continually worse. That's what panic attack was like for me because I'd be having a panic attack about the panic attack. And then when the panic subsided because I'd run out of adrenaline and cortisol and I was just in a sort of flat state of tired depression, um, you'd be dreading the next panic attack and you get into this vicious circle where the fear of the fear makes the fear more likely and strengthens it. And it's very hard to break that circle mm. and in my case it took a long time to do that and I still I still have dips but the difference is now when I have dips of anxiety or depression they tend to not last as long mm. is that because you feel you're better now to deal with it you, you know the signs yeah I can feel it coming on and also when it's actually happening because sometimes you can't you can't stop it completely because if you've been stressed out for a long period of time or something it just it comes and it it's something you have to process. But I try, yeah, I, I know to sort of like get to bed early. I know to do yoga and go for runs and like um, not drink caffeine and not drink alcohol and live a very boring life while it happens. And what normally happens now is I'll have a patch of three weeks of anxiety. And on that third week... I'll be able to do something that I wasn't able to do the week before. And that for me is so important. And so it's a way of breaking the cycle. Mm-hmm. So for instance, last time I had a big bout of anxiety. There was a week my son wanted to go to the cinema and I couldn't go. I just thought, I can't do that. I can't go out into town. I can't sit in a cinema. I'll be like hallucinating. I just can't do it. And then the next week I'm still ill, but I could go to the cinema. And just that simple act of doing something I hadn't been able to the week before mm. gave my brain a boost. A boost, yeah. and it's like oh, I'm making progress. And you've often referred to mental illness as as a demon. What did you mean by that? Is that because it's something to be feared? Yeah, I mean, I'm not. Uh, I mean, demon. Obviously, the language of demons and having demons goes way back to 
medieval time when people thought it was like literal demons, like you were being possessed by the devil, which isn't so good. But just that it always felt like it was something that I was uh, battling with that was part of me, but not part of me. So demon, you know, it was a sort of poetic word for that. I'm not suggesting it's a great thing to talk about, but it was definitely something that... um, it felt like to me and, and it felt mischievous, you know, it felt like it, whatever strategy I used, it would try and outwit me with another strategy. So it sometimes helped to see it as a literal thing. And when I used to hallucinate, actually, I used to sort of, one of the images my brain tormented myself was well, like, like a sort of church gargoyle, like little demon. Yeah, because when I was reading that in, in Reasons to Stay Alive, I didn't know if it was like a metaphor or if it was something that you were actually actually yes. seeing. I mean, I didn't actually believe there was a demon. I knew, my, I wasn't in that state of psychosis where I thought I was totally delusional. But I, it was like a sort of fever dream, a sort of waking fever dream where yeah. your brain is just burnt out. And- I'm a big sort of Twitter user, which I know you are, So, and sometimes that's quite unhealthy. Um, but I feel like especially in Mental Health Awareness Week this week, phrases like man up or yeah. chin up or just get on with it. Yeah, uh, which is being, essentially saying shut up. Isn't yeah, it? it's being overused. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a it's a, it's a thing that a lot of people um, feel. And um, I, I always talk about him. I shouldn't really, but Piers Morgan. I didn't want to mention his name unless, <laughs> unless you did. Well, seeing as we've talked about demons, let's, yeah. let, let's exercise one. Um, Piers Morgan, I have nothing against him as a person, but he, he seems to have a fundamental misunderstanding of various issues. One of them is uh, mental health. He's done loads of tweets. He did one this week, actually, which is which quite a shaming one about people whining about mental health. Yeah, or that's, sl- I hate it. Yeah, that really. So yeah. whining. Yeah. But another one which I think gets to the root of a lot of mental health stigma is Piers Morgan did this tweet and had about 30,000 likes or something. And it was saying, we should stop talking about mental health and start talking about mental strength and, and give kids resilience and stuff. And in his head, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, he probably thought that was a good... Me- he probably it wasn't just trolling everyone. I mean, it was probably a bit of that. But he was just thinking, you know, let's give him the benefit of that. He was thinking that was an okay thing, an okay perspective, and that, you know, us snowflakes out there are just too sensitive and, you know, we just need to have a bit of blitz spirit or something. I don't know what goes through his head. But I just think that's so interesting. You know, n- no way would he have written a tweet saying we need to stop talking about physical health mm. and we need to start talking about physical strength. Just wouldn't have done that. And we all understand how ridiculous that would be with um, physical health. But this idea that people like Piers Morgan, and it's not just him, tabloids are still at it, you know, but various parts of the media still do it occasionally. Even the Guardian and places do it occasionally to, to equate subconsciously or consciously um, mental health and mental illness, particularly with weakness, um, is 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 just there or something shameful. Like even if it's a positive news story, sometimes there'll be the use of the word admits. So it'll have like Victoria Pendleton admits um, feelings of you know, suicidal stuff, or a, a certain footballer admits. Mm-hmm. 
you know, we'll have um, like Closer magazine with a headline saying Geordie Shaw Confessions and yeah. then, then it'll be two um, stories of depression and anxiety. It's, and it shouldn't be a confession. It's just sharing an experience. Uh, and when you, you know, because people say, oh, what I get a lot is, oh, we're talking about mental health a lot more. So does that mean stigma's going away? And I think... No, because it's how we talk about it. And actually talk can increase stigma. Um, so I do definitely think there's a lot of good mental health conversation. Hopefully we're, we're you know, not being too egotistical. We're doing that right now. but mm. And I, I'm sure your podcast does. But I feel like, um, you know, it, isn't, talk isn't enough. Um, even within talking, it, it is how we talk about it. And I... I'm not saying we should um, police everyone's language or any of that, but I just wish we got to a point where we understood mental health as health. That it's not a one in four issue. It's not a one in six issue. It's a four in four issue. It's all of us. We all have mental health and we're all on a scale and none of us have 100% mental health. That's not to say we're ill. I, I, clearly know the difference when I'm ill it's a very big difference it's as different as you know when you're physically ill you know you know when your nose is a bit blocked and you know when you've got flu and there's a difference and and you absolutely know that and it's as clear if not more clear with mental health as well yeah we all have mental health we all potentially could get some develop some kind of mental illness our brains can go wrong and they're changing all the time it's we're not a fixed state forever any mm. of us and i i find that quite a hopeful thing because that's one of the things that ended up keeping me alive that our brains change but they can change in bad ways as well as good ways and there are things we can do and to talk all the time about shaming language of talking about whiners or talking about resilience or talking about mental strength um is so insulting to people who are going through that because it's not weakness to get ill. It's um, weakness to feel too scared maybe to talk about it. But all that sort of stigmatising stuff does is make you less likely to talk about it. And also, when I want an example of myself being strong, I don't ever think of the times I was well. I think of the time I nearly died and didn't, or the time I was so scared to leave the house and managed to sort of like fend off agoraphobia uh, by walking like 500 meters down a road which Piers Morgan would probably think is pathetic but that's still like the hardest thing I ever did in my life Mm. and so the idea that strength is that mental illness is the opposite of strength is is a bit gross and a bit wrong really but it's sad that so much ignorance exists. And it also, every time we get this sort of story of a celebrity having uh, to go to, say, rehab or something, that's presented as a scandal. Or when um, recently there's been a move in schools to acknowledge mental health and there have mm. been meditation techniques and relaxation techniques to help kids with panic attacks and things like that. And then one of the tabloids uh, screamed, um, snowflake kids get lessons, get lessons in chilling. Yeah, it's just awful language to use. It, yeah, it's awful language to use. It's actually shaming the act of helping. And the same stuff with the rehab stuff. It's like, it, it just trivialises it, it turns it into a joke and it actually stops people going to get help because they'd rather keep it quiet and society to think they're inverted commas normal than to actually help their own health because we've turned it into this sort of scandalous 
confession that people make or this 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 weak thing this mental weakness and um as i say give them the benefit of the doubt and it's well intended but it's totally wrong yeah so bad pierce morgan <laughs> yes, exactly. um so moving on to the notes on a nervous planet like i say i loved reasons to stay alive but notes on a nervous planet was i felt more connected to that one because it was sort of more it had a lot more advice in how of how we sort of not cope how we sort of deal with the modern world when we have men- yeah. a mental illness so do you want to talk us through that yeah i mean basically i i, I was i went into notes on a nervous planet definitely not having all the answers to this i, I just had a lot of questions because i was realizing how my own stress rates not even illness levels but actually just being stressed out or just feeling not very good was related to how I use social media or how little I've been sleeping or how stressed out I'm about my email inbox or how overworked I feel or how I just can't switch off. You know, I think that's the ultimate feeling, isn't it? We often feel like we just can't switch off because there's work and there's keeping up with texts, there's keeping up with emails, there's keeping up with Instagram, there's keeping up with the news cycle and we feel like we just can't be... You know that like um, Nike famous Nike slogan, "Just do it." It's like yeah. that was seen as so empowering, and I actually think it's like the opposite of empowering. It's like all we're doing is doing. Yeah, I want to. I just, don't want to just. just, go just to the- I just want to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to just stare at the window and look at some raindrops, or just sort of like have a. I want to walk the dog without my phone. Or as a journalist as well, though, you feel like you just always need your phone. I I envy people when they say, "I'm going on a social media detox." I can't. Yes, the news yes, doesn't stop. That's so true, it's, isn't it's, it? It's very very damaging that way. Yeah, and also I suppose it's a bit different, but like with me. I'm definitely, especially now I'm sort of known for it, I'm definitely expected to sort of be online and, you know, sell my books, talk about mental health and, um, you know, it becomes another channel. I mean, I could literally stop. And I did, I came off Twitter for about three You did? Minutes. I was like, what's going on when you mentioned it, but when you came about the, on um, to talk about the Christmas film, didn't you? Was it the book? Yes. And then you, you came back on to announce that it was going to be made into a, a movie. Yes, that so, uh, and I knew that news was going to be announced, and I thought, right, I'm going to be off Twitter until it's announced and see if I can do it. And then it kept on getting delayed, and I was like, wow, I've had like three <laughs> weeks off Twitter. Yeah. This is amazing. I'm definitely happier when I'm off Twitter. But what happens is you go back on Twitter and you, you have a nice experience, and people say, oh, welcome, uh, and then you get into it again, and before you know it, you get caught up in some you find something to be offended by or someone gets offended by you or it's just a sort of aggro world. I think even aside from general feelings about social media and mental health, Twitter is its own category of grief and mm. aggro. So you find as well out of all the positive, of all the positive messages you get, you say if you get one negative, do you focus on that negative? Yeah, that becomes the grit in your shoe. Like you just think, and it's like, you know, I shouldn't be like it, but like with reviews as well, if someone really hates my book, and that it doesn't matter how many good reviews are, my brain will be drawn to, yeah. to that one. And yeah, Twitter definitely is that. And I, in the past, this is where I'm making progress. In the past, I would get back to those things, which only leads to more negativity. And I realize now with social media, if you are determined to put out positive vibes, you do you do get more of them back mm. whereas if you're in a constant state of aggro then you're going to just get more and more aggro so it's very hard though because 
Twitter's full of sort of righteous indignation and I've done it myself and I've done it in this interview talking about Piers Morgan, but there's always something to be cross about or grumpy about. And it's a way of sort of highlighting an issue. So with mental health stigma, it's an easy way to highlight an issue by talking about someone who's... Um, um, but I think there is a better path where we can actually talk about issues by boosting the good stuff. Do you think social media is toxic to mental health? Um, I think it definitely can be. And I think we're only just starting to realise the ways it can be. I mean, if you think about it and nothing else, if, if you've ever, even if you feel like you've got a good relationship with social media, ask yourself a question, has social media ever affected your sleep? Have you ever stayed up slightly late because you're on your phone mm. or woken up a bit early and checked messages? Because if the answer to that is yes, which is most of us, then in some ways it affects your mental health because sleep affects your mental health. Um, so just on the basis of does it affect your sleep, um, I mean, and Netflix can be brought into that as well. But, um, you know, technology um, does affect our sleep. We sleep differently to how we used to, definitely sleep differently to how we used to before electricity, but we sleep differently to how we did like 10, 20, 50 years ago. Mm. Uh, the quality of our sleep is changing because of blue light and all of that. And sleep's a massive thing for mental health. But also, I think this comparison culture in our every, we compare our lives to other people's lives, which you know even the happy, fluffy, feel good social media like Instagram. Um, if you've got low self esteem, and if you're not feeling that good a place, seeing image after image of people carefully cura curating their own lives to present um, the, the their most positive image whether it's in terms of their looks their bodies that they're doing their kids their relationships it can just inevitably make you compare and what, what i find interesting is evolutionary psychology because evolutionary psychology is basically about how our brains have evolved to deal with certain situations the situations our brains have evolved to deal with um was life fifty thousand years ago where the most people you were likely to know as a human being at most was about 150 people. Nowadays, we're in this world where you can encounter 150 new faces before you're even out of bed because you can scroll through Instagram and see 150 people. We're kind of overloaded, with, not just with work and information, we're overloaded with people. And also something like Instagram, the people you are um, following... That's not a normal cross-section of society generally. Um, Instagram, you, you see the posts which are the most popular out of the people you follow. So even if you follow, even if you went out your way to follow uh, 150, inverted commas, ordinary people, um, you would still see of that 150 the most popular posts because that's how Instagram works. Mm. You'd see them more often. But people aren't following um, just their friends. They're following celebrities. They're following uh, supermodels, they're following uh, rock stars, they're following exceptional people, either super talented people, super famous people, um, people who look abnormally different. And so that accumulative effect of seeing over and over and over again these fellow human beings who somehow seem to have everything sorted, when you're, I don't know, when it's Tuesday morning and you're at the bus stop and it's raining and you're just scrolling through Kim Kardashian. Oh. And, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and like, what was it on Valentine's Day where Kanye West oh. had <laughs> basically kidnapped Kenny G yeah. and, <laughs> as, as, a, as a gift. I'm lucky to get a card. <laughs> for exactly. And even if you're in a relationship, you'd be thinking, 
oh yeah why, <laughs> why hasn't my partner kidnapped kenny g for me <laughs> and it's just yeah it, it's just that ridiculous i mean that's an extreme example but it, we're continually seeing people who look either younger happier healthier richer more famous this that and the other and it, it, it it, it's this media narrative we have, which is part of consumerism that fa- it doesn't matter how many stories we hear of celebrities going off the rails, of celebrity suicides, of celebrity illnesses, of celebrities saying they hate their lives. We're still fed the narrative that fame and money are salvation because that's what sort of keeps the economy going. It's what the X Factor is all about. It's what Britain's Got Talent's all about. The underlying message is you kind of need to be saved from normality and become a famous person and then mm. you're saved. And you can be saved from your sort of normal existence with your normal nan and your normal bus or whatever those montages of normal life they do with the sad yeah. music. And you could be saved because Simon Cowell is going to be the genie who grants you all your wishes. And, you know, we, everyone's fed this narrative, which is a load of BS, really. You touched on it a bit before. This week is Mental Health Awareness Week and we're in partnership with the Mental Health Foundation and this year's theme is Body Image. Mm. How do you feel about your body? Oh, well, at the moment, not too bad. But to be honest, at various points in my life, I've been really bothered about it and bothered about my looks generally. I mean, to the extent that when I was a kid, for me, it was never about being skinny. Because when I was a kid, I was super self-conscious because I was the tallest boy in the year for a while. I was super lanky. I'd be called Lanky Dork as my nickname or Lanky all the time. Even teachers call me Lanky or Lofty. I had, a, I had a rugby teacher call me Lofty and Lanky. And um, yeah, I didn't go to a great school. No. Uh, <laughs> it was the 80s. It was, it was hard. Um, and there was a girl I fancied at school. And, you know, I've got an okay relationship with her now as Facebook friends and stuff. But there was just one thing she said that effectively, like she didn't want to sit next to me because I had hair coming out of a mole on my face. And she uh, called me moly or something. And from that moment on, Every time I saw myself in a mirror, all I could see was the moles on my face. And it's like, like as if I had some, like, like it was like literally that's all anyone could see. And realistically now, when I look at photos of myself as a teenager, I think as a perfectly normal looking boy, you can hardly see any moles on my face. What was I going on about? But it got so intense. And, and I literally, um, I say in Reasons to Stay Alive, I took a... Um, toothbrush to my face and tried to sort of like create a scar instead of having the mole that's how obsessed I got which was so ridiculous and obviously made me look worse and drew attention to everything so I had that and then then I used to uh, double toxic thing and it sounds so weird now in today's culture but back in the 80s where you didn't know much about um what you're meant to do in fitness to bulk, I used to drink loads of beer to try and mm. get big. I almost like wanted a beer belly. I wanted to be big because I'd been called skinny so much. So I, I, I'd binge, eat a lot. Um, nowadays, yeah, I, I suppose so. I mean, I go to the gym and even now I can get, like you see obviously like 20 year old with like, I was like, I just think, yeah, you do feel like, oh yeah, if I, if I had their diets and did that, I could be like, and it's just, then you check yourself and think, is not where happiness is because actually there have been times in my life where I've really worked hard, out hard and looked relatively good um, and I wasn't any happier. Mm. It just made me more neurotic because mm. uh, you get, there's always a level above. There's a, you know, you, once you start playing that game of you, you placing your value in your looks, it, 
you you you, you get more anxiety because you have to work at it every day and because you know you're going to get old and you're in a mortal human body that's at some point going to get wrinkly and saggy and so once you start placing all your value in your image and your body image and don't get me wrong it's hard not to in a looks obsessed society but you know it's never it's never going to be happiness happiness we're being sold this idea of like happiness being an after picture you know like you get before and after everything yeah whatever it is that's not happiness i'm nothing against fitness i massive believer that physical health can improve your mental health but the obsession with the aesthetics of fitness is troubling and it's also makes it very hard to realize um when there's a mental health problem because for instance now there's this rising um, condition called muscle dysmorphia, which men have. Um, and it's very different to, say, an anorexia or bulimia, because for a start, it's about being big and it's about being in shape. So the behaviour doesn't look that toxic, because they're going to the gym, they're eating often relatively healthy, but mentally they'll be obsessed and being able to think about nothing else mm-hmm. to get into that shape. So so what I'm saying is mental ill health can sometimes look like physical health. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it can be very hard to detect. And it's happening with younger and younger boys getting obsessed with um, having sort of like the look of photoshopped abs and all the rest of it. Touching upon that, do you think social media is bad for body image? Because what I've found recently is there's more sort of Instagram pages for bigger girls who love the body, but I feel like sometimes they just get fat shamed or which is which is upsetting to if they're comfortable, then why shouldn't they embrace that? Yeah, I've, yeah, I definitely think so. I've definitely Instagram's bad for it. There are definitely good things on there, like the iWay account, which I've had some sort of work, done some work with as well. Which is Jamila Jamil's thing about body image, and there is a lot of body positivity. But I feel like sometimes, um, even when people are being positive about um, other people's bodies, there's a risk they're doing it because they know it's not conventional. It's almost like patronising, and it becomes. I don't know if it's necessarily the liking it, the confidence, or if it's making them so. So I feel like I feel like there's still a very strong idea of conventional beauty that exists, even and it's like the mental health conversation. I think that the body image conversation, simply having the body image conversation, isn't enough. It's sort of like, what are we really saying, and how are we saying it? And I think no one knows where the lines are because obviously. Like I, I follow some personal trainers and I think you, you get some great personal trainers on that who really do sort of focus on fitness and everything else. And, you know, when I've ranted about this before, people say, well, I go to the gym. And it's like, well, I go to the gym. I go to the gym most days, but there's a difference between going to the gym and um, feeling like um, people should be ashamed for not going. I, I saw an a advert put on instagram recently there was this advert i saw i think it was in the british airways magazine mm. and the in-flight magazine which everyone going on a british airways flight sees and it was on the back page of a magazine and it was this terrible thing i can't remember the name of the brand but it was some sort of personal trainer company mm. and i had this typical before and after picture of a man with a beer belly and then the sort of hercules adonis kind of man with a sort of six pack and everything which you know is bad enough but what was really bad about it was uh, they said underneath the pictures, it was like before, it was like um, cuddly te- teddy bear, self-indulgent, 
this that, and the other and load of character traits and then uh under the sort of hunky one it was um uh what was it built like a rake source turns heads in control this that, and the other and it's like the idea that um you're self-indulgent for not going to the gym for five hours a day for a start seems a bit ridiculous i mean yeah. going to the gym doesn't make you gandhi does it it doesn't no. it's not i mean there's nothing wrong with going to the gym but it's like the idea that that automatically makes it makes you some sort of better character yeah. not just better body but better personality and that equation with a normal body being something to be ashamed of and the whole idea of beach bodies and summer bodies and all of that yeah like you, you need in it to pass an entry exam for actually stepping onto a beach. Well, you go to the beach and then there's just loads of people just <laughs> hanging no, out and you're like, why exactly. did I waste all that time? <laughs> the beach doesn't care. And also this is a new stress that humans never used to have. I don't think like our cave people ancestors thousands of years ago when we were going out hunting fish with spears ever thought, oh no, I can't today. I've got, I've, you know, it's just a totally manufactured stress for to keep the consumer economy going because it's always sell you something if it's either to sell a magazine or it's to tell you sell you a product or some appetite suppressant lollipop or whatever it is so you talk about your lovely wife andrea a lot yes. would you say that she was the one who saved you ultimately um i wouldn't say that because i've i like to genuinely believe i'd have stayed alive whatever i like to believe that um I'd stay alive somehow without her and that life, if you listen hard enough, gives you reasons. I was very lucky and privileged to have someone in my life who I could talk to. I think the main thing is, because Andrea obviously wasn't trained. She wasn't a, she didn't, she wasn't a doctor. She hadn't got a psychology degree or anything. But the thing is, um, we'd been together five years when I became ill. And five years, when you're 24, is, that's a long, long, long time. And so I felt like totally comfortable in her presence. So she was the only person, and this includes my parents who were supportive, but I didn't quite have that openness with them. Andrea was the only person that I could be myself and tell her what I was feeling, which was hard for her. But it did save me a little bit because it was like having a valve because the exhausting thing with mental illness is when you're covering it up. Yeah. And when you like you know, feel like you have to cover it up. And so I wasn't having uh, therapy for about that time, but what therapy gives you is a place to externalise it and analyse it and stuff. And she gave me that and we sort of broke it down, what I was feeling and everything else. And it was a massive help. And, you know, she sorted out all the life stuff as well, you know, paying the bills. And we were in masses of student debt and everything. And so she sorted out all that and she didn't burden me with any of that and shielding me from that was a massive privilege as well. So I'm incredibly grateful to have her. Um, I feel like, I feel hesitant to say she saved me because I feel like there was a point when I was in so much pain where it didn't make a difference who I had. Even Andrea, it felt like she was 10,000 miles away from me, even if she was across the table because, and also it's easy to think, oh, you're staying alive for other people. But what people don't realise is depression can do weird things to your brain. So you can be depressed and actually think, oh, well, she'd be better off without me. Or 
it's selfish to stay alive. You know, because that's the irony. I always think, you know, when people say, oh, he was selfish to take their own life because he had kids or it's like, you do not understand what tricks Mm. depression can play and what perspective it can give. And you can feel such a burden or, you know, all of that stuff. So I just find that so ironic. Um, But yeah, she, she, I was incredibly grateful to have her, but I, I feel like, even if someone feels like they've got no one, or even if I'd had no one, I think ultimately you, you can still stay alive for other people. It's just those other people are either the people you haven't met yet or the people you yourself are going to become. Because I feel like I became a different person. When I look back at that 24-year-old person, and even before I was ill, so I'm not just talking about the illness, I'm talking about before I was ill, I'm a different person, very different person to who I was. Mm. And actually, my experience of illness actually catalyzed that and made me change faster than I would otherwise. So I be- the other pe- people I stayed alive for, the people that I became and the, the, the versions of me I became that are grateful I didn't um, take my own life. And finally, um, what advice would you give to someone who's going through a mental illness? To trust in change and that they will not always be stuck in that moment and the bottom of the valley never provides um, the clearest view. Thank you so much, Matt. I wish I could just talk to you forever because it's been amazing. No worries. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for checking out the show. I hope you join us on the journey as we explore mental health. You can follow us on Twitter at I'm Fine Podcast underscore, where we'll have loads more information and some sneak peeks for future episodes. Mm-hmm.